Broadcasting live from the KVXL studios at Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. Freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. The Frittle Show with Crystal Heath. I've said that we must be cautious in claiming God is on our side. I think the real question we must answer is, are we on his side? Faith, family, freedom. For me, it's very simple. I think we've got to we've got to get the country back on the right track with the most inspiring agenda a voice in the desert now here's crystal heath hey las vegas what's up this thursday great to have you here you are listening to kbxl 101.1 fm experience liberty radio from liberty baptist church in las vegas or maybe you know you're turning turned in tuned in to the uh, podcast on SoundCloud or iTunes. No matter how you found us, we appreciate you being here. Always an honor to have you choose to spend some time with us here at the Friddle Show. I was talking to my friend Rose on my commute to work this morning, which since I moved is approximately four and a half minutes. So it you know, cut out about 15 minutes of the time that we usually talk. I have to find I have to find new times to talk to people on the phone because the main time when I would call people, my car has a Bluetooth that runs through the car. It's like one of the best inventions ever of mankind in this century, in my opinion, because it just started. Well, maybe it, okay, maybe it wasn't invented this century. I don't actually know when Bluetooth was added to vehicles. Maybe it was in the 20th and not the 21st. Anyway, point being... It's a great use of time, in my opinion. Uh, I found that that time of driving and commuting gave me an opportunity you know, to call my parents on a regular basis, call my other family members, call my friends back east. Because I had, you know, depending on traffic lights, anywhere from 18 to 25 minutes uh, in the car in the morning and in the evening. So I could hit you know, two people each day, every day of the week, literally, except for Mondays that's the day that I don't work or go to church. And since they're at the same location, it takes me the same amount of time each time. But now I don't, like, I have to think through how I'm going to, I'm going to have to specifically carve out time to call people because that commute time is officially gone, which is wonderful. Like, I'm not, it is a great, great problem to have. I cannot tell you how amazing it is to leave work, get in the car, and basically get out of the car and be home. So nice, you guys. I am so incredibly grateful that not only did God give me an an amazing new property, but also put it right down the street from church. So, such a blessing. Why am I telling you that? I don't remember why I'm telling you about... Oh, because as I was prepping... uh, Prepping? No, I was driving here in like the, again, four-minute time that took me to get here. Called my best friend Rose back in Pennsylvania. She's getting ready to get married. Congratulations, Rose. Yes, I'm the maid of honor. Anyhow, um, and I was like, all right, I got to go because I got to gotta finish gearing up to be on the radio here. And she was like, what are you talking about today? The Mueller report? And I was like, oh, I don't want to talk about the Mueller report. She was like, but that's what's happening in the world. I was like, I know, but there's nothing to talk about. But that's what everybody wants to know about. And I was like, fine, fine. For you, Rose, since you say that this is the thing that everybody is talking about and wants to hear about, I'll throw it in at the beginning, but then 
We're going to completely shift topics because I am so tired of this whole thing. I like, I know political junkies are thriving on this, but to be honest, most of America, I don't think are political junkies and I really don't think many Americans care at this point. Once upon a time, some people cared, then fewer people cared. Now I'm pretty sure basically no one cares unless they are, as mentioned previously, political junkies. And they're just, I, I feel that the political junkie is almost even a dying breed in this country. Um, it's not what it once was. Evidence of that, in my opinion, at least on the conservative side, CPAC. It's just not, it's not what it was. I love CPAC, but it's, it's different now than it was 10 years ago, but... That's neither here nor there. The reason that I allow Rose to influence, by the way, what I'm talking about is because once upon a time, we worked on a statewide campaign in Pennsylvania together. I was the speechwriter slash secretary slash scheduler slash campaign finance report. Like I did all the things. It's not actually that different than my job now, come to think of it. But it's just did all the things. Rose is very artistic. She would handle all of the promotional materials, the flyers, the graphs, the charts. Anything that, uh, that we needed that had to do with graphic design, that was Rose. Photographs. She'd travel with the candidate, take pictures, post pictures, social media. That was her department. And then we had our campaign manager as well. So it was the three of us running a statewide campaign in the state of Pennsylvania. Now that I say that out loud, it... Yeah. Anyway, so we were running this thing, and one day (laughs) our candidate came in, and we were having a conversation, and he was telling us something. He was maybe practicing his his main talking points for a debate or something like that. I don't remember if it was a debate or a speech, but he was on the whiteboard outlining, these are what my main talking points are going to be. What do you guys think about boom, boom, boom? Should I go in this order? What if they come with this? What about this question? You know, we're having a dialogue back and forth prepping for this. I don't remember if it was a debate or a town hall. It was something where there was going to be interaction. And, uh, (laughs) And he said something. And he asked, uh, he asked me if that made sense. And I was like, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. I totally get what you're saying. Totally there. Agree 100%. That's a strong point. Good job. And then he looked at Rose and he was like, does that make sense to you? And, you know, I was a little, I was a little hurt because I just told him it made sense. And, uh, and he was like, so I want different need to get everybody's everybody's differing opinions. I, I got that. I wasn't actually hurt. And she was like, all right, guys. I don't... This isn't meant to be offensive to any of you. <laughs> she's talking to me, the campaign manager, uh, and, and our candidate. She's like, I don't mean to offend any of you guys. But you are all, like, really into politics. And you talk about this stuff, and you think about this stuff, and you even enjoy doing these things for fun. Like, you would do it even if you didn't have to. It's like, but people like me, and I think I represent the average. <laughs> this, is, this is the funniest thing I think that Rose has ever said. It was so sincere. 
She's like, I am your average American voter, and I just do not care. And what you just said makes no sense to me at all. And it was like a light bulb moment for all of us in the room because we realized that we were living in a, in a bubble, living in a vacuum of, of politics and political players. And, and we'd been dealing with committees and committee people and, and living in this bubble of these are the people that come to these events. But the only people that come to these events are people that are political junkies, but we don't need political junkies. We need everybody. And if, if Rose is representative of the people that aren't in these spheres and she's saying you missed the mark, then it's more important what she thinks about than what we think about. So whenever Rose is like, oh, well, aren't you going to talk about this political issue? It always takes me back to that moment. I'm like, okay, if Rose says that that's something that people want to know about, then I should go with it. Because in my world, I'm going, we have done this over and over and over and over again. I don't want to do it again. But I realize that not everybody is like me. And so maybe maybe you don't know what's been going on. Maybe you don't live in a world where you enjoy finding out what's going on in the world of politics. Maybe you just turn into, tune into this program so you can get, like, I just need my weekly one-hour snippet of what's happening politically, and then I can be good and move on. So that you don't miss anything, we will rehash. You remember the whole Russia collusion, Donald Trump's a traitor, that whole thing that we've been doing for like almost two years? Yeah. So the FBI completed an investigation. I don't even remember when it was completed, a couple of months ago. I, I Again, I didn't prep for this because I wasn't going to talk about it because I was like, we are done with this issue. But then Rose said we should, so here we go. They, he completed his report. They did not declare Donald Trump innocent per se, but the report did say that they did not. It said, what was the wording? I forget what the exact wording was, but one of the, I think it was a representative from Florida, asked Robert Mueller yesterday <laughs> if he had any other examples of where because a Justice Department could not find the person innocent, they did not exonerate them. In essence, flipping on its head the, the, the American concept of innocent until proven guilty, he essentially was saying, so what you're doing is you're not saying that he's innocent because you can't prove his innocence. And rather than trying to prove his guilt, you've been trying to prove his innocence, and since you can't prove the innocence or the guilt, you're just not doing anything. And that's basically where the report ended up. They couldn't prove his guilt. They didn't prove his innocence. So they were like, it was kind of just a, a big, fat nothing. It's like a meh, meh. Republicans, by and large, found that to be a victory. They were like, look, they didn't prove his guilty of anything, so we're done with this. Let's move on. Let's focus on things that actually matter to the country and in the world. Democrats were like, look, they didn't prove he was innocent, so... We need to have some hearings and actually talk to Robert Mueller himself and find out why they did not say that he was guilty. So you have uh, former special counsel, counsel Robert Mueller at Capitol Hill yesterday uh, rep uh, reporting, uh, no, uh, appearing, answering questions in 
front of various committees. The House Judiciary Committee was one. I know there was at least one other, but I don't remember who uh, it was. And it was just, it was, it was painful to watch for me. And I enjoy politics. And it was all over social media, especially if you do, Twitter is a very political social media outlet. And Twitter is particularly just exploded with this all day long. And round and round and round in circles we went again. Because this guy sits up there. First of all, he, he could barely answer his questions. It seemed like he didn't even know what was written in his own report. He repeatedly asked for repeated questions, things that shouldn't have been hard questions to understand. He seemed to have no idea what they were asking. And he repeated again that the, the, that Donald Trump was not guilty of anything. He also repeated that they didn't prove his innocence about anything. Like, it's just, to me, this is why I wasn't going to bring it up today, because we did not learn anything. Except that Mueller, some are speculating that perhaps he has an illness or a sickness or something was wrong with him because it seemed non-characteristic. Many on the left are disappointed because they felt that it was uh, two years of his investigative work and now his testimony that would eventually lead to President Trump being removed for office. That didn't happen. And this testimony yesterday made that even less likely to happen. And now many of the president's largest detractors are focusing their targets on Robert Mueller himself, even over Trump. It's as if the... uh, What's the terminology? Not the golden calf. Oh, goodness. There's a saying... I can think of it in the back of my head, but it won't come forward. <laughs> oh, I don't know. But it was as if this was this was like their last hope for many on the left. They were hoping that this would be the moment where now we can gotcha Trump, get him out of the way, and get our stuff accomplished. Harvard Law Professor Lawrence Tribe, who has been an outspoken critic of the president who calls regularly for his impeachment, for his indictment, indictment, he tweeted, he said, Much as I hate to say it, this morning's hearing was a disaster. Far from breathing life into his report, the tired Robert Mueller sucked the life out of it. The effort to save democracy and the rule of law from this lawless president has been set back, not advanced. He also noted that Mueller failed to provide (laughs) the made-for-TV moment that Democrats could have rallied behind in their efforts to bring down the president. Michael Moore joined in on Twitter as well. He called called Mueller a frail old man, unable to remember things, stumbling, refusing to answer basic questions. I said it in 2017, and Mueller confirmed it today. All you pundits and moderates and lame Dems who told the public to put their faith in the esteemed Robert Mueller, just uh, profanities, be quiet, essentially, from now on. Now... There were, there were a few points uh, for Democrats in this thing 
Uh, he refuted the president's claim that he was exonerated by the investigation. Um, but that's the report said that. So I don't I don't count that as points uh, for Democrats, really. And that was pretty much the only one that Democrats got. And, and everybody knew if you actually read the report that it doesn't use those words per se. It didn't find him guilty of anything. It didn't find him innocent either. So I don't know. David Axelrod, former senior advisor to President Obama, tweeted as the hearing was going on, this is very, very painful. Attorney Jay Sekulow, one of my favorite legal minds in our country, said, quote, the American people understand that this issue is over. They also understand that the case is closed. And I think that's a good place to leave this, right? I, I completely 100% agree with Sekulow on this. The issue is over. The case is closed. Everybody needs to move on. I don't even, I don't know how, like there's nothing else, I don't know what else they could possibly do. You had the investigation, two years of investigation. You had the report. Now you have hearings. You're not learning anything new. We're not making any progress. This is a waste of taxpayer time and resources. This is a waste of our government employees. And by our government employees, I mean our men and women in Congress. Yes, they are our employees. It seems kind of crass to refer to them that way, but it's it, what it boils down to is that's what they are. We are paying them to work for us, and they're just running around in circles every time we rehash this thing instead of actually getting something productive done for the country. Like, let's go work on health care. Let's go work on the debt, shall we? Let's balance a budget. Let's stop with this senseless, needless, no information improving country improving madness like it just it just needs to stop and i've talked about this in the past if you're a regular listener of the program i said long ago look if something was done that was illegal that was uh, unconstitutional then we need to know about it there should be an investigation to find out was something done that should not have been done that needs to be dealt with we i agree that that I don't have any problem with the fact that there was an investigation, but the fact that we cannot accept the results of that investigation because they aren't what we want them to be is just petty and elementary. And we need to move on from this so that we can actually accomplish things that need to be done for the good of our country. And the big thing right now is our debt. Like it is unbelievable. It is out of control and happy times. That is the topic of our next segment. (laughs) And you might be like, why on earth would I want to listen to that? I don't want to talk about debt. Well, that's exactly why we need to talk about it. Because no one else is. And the people that are talking about it are like, oh, look, we raised the debt ceiling again. Yay. No, no, it's a terrible, terrible thing. We're going to talk about why when we return in just a few moments. You're listening to KVXL 101.1 FM, Experience Liberty Radio from Liberty Baptist Church in Las Vegas. We'll be back in just a few moments. Don't go away. 
All right. This is going to be an uncomfortable topic for some of you. For some of you, it will be more uncomfortable than others. But we need to talk about the debt issue in our country. I realize that this is not a fun topic. This is not something that we look forward to discussing. It's not even something that most people want to talk about. Most people don't even want to talk about their own financial situation, let alone the financial situation of the country. And because we don't see it affecting us on a daily basis, or at least we don't understand how it affects us on a daily basis, we don't really think about it. We don't really care because, okay, yeah, so there's this astronomical amount of money that we owe to somebody somewhere, and uh, but, you know, doesn't really affect my life, so not worried about it. And, you know, honestly, you're, you're right. It really doesn't affect you that much. But it could have a ginormous, it's a good word, impact on your children and your grandchildren if we don't turn this ship around. Because eventually, somebody has to pay the bill. You're like, well, we haven't paid the bill. Yeah, well, the bill has not been anything like what it is right now. You know, President Trump, then candidate Trump, when he was running for president in 2016, Donald Trump said, I'm the king of debt. And he said that as if it was a good thing. Now, in business, debt is necessary. Debt can even be good for different uh, tax purposes and other reasons. And so in, in business, it's, it's kind of different. For individuals, I don't really ever encourage debt. In fact, the only debt I would say would be manageable would be uh, a mortgage. But that's another topic for another time. And you can go see Dev Ramsey. He's way better and more fluent talking about that than I am. But saying you're the king of debt is not necessarily, you know, a, a good talking point. Neither is it necessarily good governance. But it is, in fact, true. Donald Trump has become the king of debt, particularly American debt. Now, why am I talking about this now? Because earlier this week, I think it was earlier this week, um, like on the 22nd, yeah, on Monday. On Monday, the president and congressional Democrats reached a two-year budget deal, avoided the crisis on the debt ceiling again. Now, the key phrasing there, two-year budget deal. They are punting the football. They are postponing dealing with this issue until after the next election, which I think is a horrible idea for many reasons, and we will get into these in detail momentarily. Uh, but the new budget deal calls for raising federal spending levels, lifting the debt ceiling, averting what potentially would have been another partisan battle this fall like we had last year. Uh, the president praised the deal, saying that it had no poison pill, no poison pills. That means like no, um, uh, no hidden agenda items. It was just strictly dealing with the financial issues. And he said it was a real compromise in order to give another big victory to our great military and vets. It lifts the threat of deep automatic spending cuts that would be happening because Congress approved them several years ago. 
It's a way to force compromise if budget agreements were not made. It raises spending by about $320 billion above what would have been spent uh, otherwise. Um, Pelosi and Schumer issued a joint statement that said the agreement, quote, enhances our national security, invests in middle-class priorities that advance the health, financial security, and well-being of the American people. Uh, McConnell says that he intends to have the Senate vote on the agreement before the start of the annual August recess and that the GOP's main goal is military funding. He said this was our top objective, continuing to restore the readiness of our armed forces and modernize our military to deter and defend against growing threats to our national security. This is being praised on both sides of the aisle from liberal pundits, from conservative pundits. I haven't seen many people not calling this a win. But I'm going to give you my opinion. And it is my opinion. Your opinion may differ. But I agree with the nonpartisan committee for a responsible federal budget, which said this agreement may be the worst in history for our country. I agree with that. Maya McGinnis, the group's president, said members of Congress should cancel their summer recess and return to the negotiating table for a better deal. If they don't, those who support this deal should hang their heads in total shame as they bolt town. This deal would amount to nothing short of fiscal sabotage. Well, that may sound extreme to you. But quite honestly, it's not if you actually look at the numbers and if you understand what our deficit is, what our debt is, and how this impacts our country. And we're going to talk about all of that here in today's program because that is our main topic for the day. You ready? All right. Frankly, let's begin here. We have no excuses for this out-of-control spending. The fact that we spend more than we bring in There's no reason that we should be doing this. There are times in our country's history where this has been not only uh, where where we have generated debt and where we have spent well into the deficit, but uh, well above the deficit rather. But those times were very specific and with very specific needs. Okay, think wartime, think recession. But we're not in wartime. We're not in the midst of a recession. And as such, this sort of spending, out of control spending, should not be tolerated by we, the American people. And on this program, I try to be actually fair and balanced. I always attempt to share my thoughts with you in a manner that will be filtered through a biblical worldview, followed by uh, simple reasoning. And really, that's all I've got. People think that I'm smart sometimes. I'm, I'm not smart. I'm just curious. I want to know things, and then I try to learn about them. And if the opportunity presents itself or the need arises, maybe I'll share some of the answers I've found with you. That's pretty much how it works here, guys. It's, it's simple. Biblical worldview. Read arguments by both sides, because it's never wisdom to hear only one side of any story. Compare the two. Come up with a reasonable thought process, which never contradicts the Word of God. So here's mine on this topic. Are you ready? It boils down to this. It's very simple. We need a budget. We need to stick to the budget so that we know what we have and we spend within our means. That's it. 
We could end the program right now. This is not a complicated issue, or at least it shouldn't be. The problem that the federal government has with money is not any different, really, than the problem that you and I have with money, or maybe you don't have a problem with money, but the general American populace. How do you solve money problems at home? You make a budget. You live within your means. You know what you have. You don't spend more than what you have. It's simple. And aside from, again, those instances where it is prudent to live above your means, potentially, for a short time being, for example, wartime and recession, that's understandable. But when neither is in place, what needs to happen on the national level is what would happen, what any financial advisor would tell anyone who was personally struggling financially to do. You need to make a budget. We know what you bring in, and now you're not going to spend more than what you have. We'll cut up your credit cards if need be, put you on a cash-only system, whatever it takes to get you out of the hole. The problem is, on a national level, we're not even trying to get out of the hole. We're, we're just making the hole bigger and bigger and bigger until it is becoming a bottomless abyss that is going to suck us right in. <sighs> so here's the nitty gritties of this, because as, as I was thinking about this earlier, I realized that there may be people that don't even understand the, the topics, the terms, so let's go through this fairly detailed. Well, I don't know how much we'll get through in, in the program today, but I'm going to try to give you a pretty good understanding of what's going on with our debt and our deficit and what those actually mean. That's my goal. We'll see if it happens. Hopefully, hopefully it's helpful to you. So first we have the debt and we have the deficit. So we have the money that the government makes, if you will, each year versus the government, uh, the money the government spends each year. That gap, the difference between what the government takes in and what the government spends, is what is known as the deficit. There is almost always a deficit. There is almost never a surplus. <laughs> You're familiar with a deficit, okay? This is how it works for you in your personal life. You're at the county fair. You have $4 in your wallet. That burger and fries is $6. The milkshake you want is another $4. So you have a $6 budget shortfall for the things that you would like to buy. They are $10. You only have $4. You don't have enough money to spend on the products you want, so you have a deficit. You have a $6 deficit, to be precise. So you can choose to either buy just the milkshake, which is $4, which is what you have, or you choose to buy nothing at all. But either way, you don't have enough money for the burger and fries. Even if you only got the burger and fries for $6, you still have a $2 deficit. So you, you, you can't do it. The difference is that if you were operating like the federal government in this scenario, you would just walk up to one stand and be like, Hey, uh, I'm going to buy the burger and fries and I'm going to give you $2 for those. Because I've got to go and give the other my other $2 to the milkshake stand next door. And then I'll just owe you both the rest sometime in the future. Now you have debt because you didn't live within the means and deal honestly with your deficit. Uh, 
But instead of, you know, I'll just I'll owe you the rest, you, you let them know. But the problem is, I'm actually not going to be able to pay you back, but someday my children will. Try it sometime. Walk up to a booth at the county fair and be like, hey, so here's the thing. I have a $2 deficit, but it's really no big deal. I'll pay you back sometime. Are they going to give you a product? No, they're not. Because <laughs> that's not how the world works. Our national debt is the result of what the government has been borrowing to fill the deficit gap to buy the things that they want or they feel that we need. They say, this is what we have, but this is what we want, so we'll just borrow the money to make up the difference. We don't know how we're going to pay it back, but it's all right. We'll figure it out someday. And campaign statements about credit cards in the Bank of China come to mind. Speaking of which, as of December 2012, the People's Republic of China owed one, owned $1.2 trillion in treasury securities, and Japan owed $1.1 trillion, making them the two largest holders of the U.S. public debt. So when they say we have this debt, question is, who do we owe this money to? Well, some is owed to Americans, uh, bonds, trusts, different things. But most of what we owe is issued in securities. Uh, and China and Japan are the countries that we are most indebted to. Did you know that our debt is more than the total size of our economy and is equivalent to the gross domestic products of China, Japan, and Germany combined. Yeah. Do you know there's a debt clock? You can go and watch it. You can watch our debt just go up and up and up. I don't even know what number this is. Uh... Million, billion, twenty-two and a half trillion dollars, and the numbers—it's—it's—it's it's, it's unreal to watch what these numbers do. Like, I wish my bank account would do this, but uh, not in debt, in money that I—that is coming into my account because it's just—you can't even. Okay, here's what we're gonna do. Are you ready? Starting right now. Until now, we just gained $100,000 in debt. In that, what was it? Maybe five seconds? It's unbelievable. And we have really two options. And it's not just me. The, the Congressional Budget Office puts in their reports. There's only, there's only, we have two, we have two choices. We can either cut spending or we can increase revenue. Increased revenue means that we increase taxes. That's is a misleading term because the federal government doesn't make money. The federal government takes money from you out of your pocket. And we could talk about national parks and things, but honestly, it's not even, I don't know, that's a whole other topic. They're not, it's, it's cut spending or increased taxes. That's it. Those are the options. And neither one is politically popular. One party doesn't like the former. The other party doesn't like the latter. My main problem, uh... With, with increasing the revenue, is again, it doesn't mean increasing the revenue. It means increasing the taxes. 
Right now, the federal government takes in approximately $10,000 per uh, U.S. citizen. Okay? $10,000 per U.S. citizen. There are 327 million people in this country. Approximately 44% of those people do not pay any taxes whatsoever. So you have uh, 144 million, in essence, uh, that do not pay taxes at all. And despite the fact that 144 million people don't pay any taxes, the government is still bringing in approximately $10,000 per person. So, what is my problem with increasing the revenue, quote-unquote, a.k.a. increasing the taxes? It's very simple. Something like this. Never be enough. It'll never be enough, guys. It'll just, it'll never be enough. We can increase taxes all we want, but unless we actually start budgeting, the amount that, that the government brings in will never be enough, literally. The gap between what we tax and what we spend last year was $779 billion. Approximately $2,300 per person more than what we have is what we spend. Last year, total net federal spending hit $4.1 trillion. Now, it's just like, okay, $4.1 trillion. No, no, no. Think about the size of that number, right? A million dollars is a lot of money. We have television shows everywhere you turn that the big prize, if you win, you're going to get a million dollars. And a million dollars is a ton of money. A ton of money. You've dreamed about it. What would you do with a million dollars? You've played this game. If you had a million dollars, what would you buy? Okay, you've, you've done this, right? A trillion dollars is one is a million, one million, multiplied by one million. So when we say that the federal government spent $4.1 trillion last year, what we're saying is that the federal government spent $4 million million last year. <laughs> That's a number that I almost can't begin to picture. It's the same as the combined uh, gross domestic product of 16 U.S. states, including Nevada, Arizona, uh, Utah, Colorado, Nebraska, Oklahoma, Louisiana, South Carolina, Kentucky, Connecticut, Missouri, Iowa, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Oregon, and I think I missed one, uh, either Alabama, I think it's Alabama. 16 states worth of income is what the government spends. And according to the Congressional Budget Office, nonpartisan office, our public debt is projected to approach 100% of our gross domestic product in the next 10 years. So right now, 16 states worth of gross domestic product. In the next 10 years, everything. Our debt level will be the equivalent of what we produce. That is unsustainable. That is where we have big, big problems. And yet we just keep spending. 
We keep raising the debt ceiling. We keep saying it's no big deal. Or at least that's what our candidates keep telling us. And each side hails it as a victory when we agree that, hey, we raised the debt ceiling. Yay! Victory! Because we're going to fund our programs. Victory! Because we're going to fund the military. And look, I, I'm not saying that either of those is wrong necessarily. But we have to cut something somewhere. And what is the actual responsibility of the federal government? What is the federal government responsible for? Protecting we the people. So... We need to fund our military, but maybe other things we're going to have to make some hard decisions on. And this is not a losing issue, by the way. This is a winning issue. Some candidate, it doesn't matter which side of the aisle they're on. This doesn't need to be a conservative issue. This doesn't need to be a liberal issue. This is a winning issue for candidates. 94% of Republicans and 92% of Democrats, according to polling by the Peter G. Peterson Foundation, agree that future generations will be better off if the national debt is managed properly. This isn't a liberal issue. This isn't a conservative issue. This is an issue that if somebody will embrace this thing and champion it, this is a winning issue. As much as it isn't fun to talk about, people know that what we're doing isn't acceptable. I mean, spending on just the interest on our debt. In five years, the interest money that we pay on our debt, just the interest will overtake everything that we spend on all of our defense, all of our military budget. Which, and that creates a, 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 a major problem for national security. And that's just in five years. In five years, we will be spending more on interest than on national security. In 30 years, our interest will be our largest federal expenditure. Just the interest that we're paying. Not not the debt, not anything that we're paying off, just the interest. Think of all the roads, the bridges, the classrooms. I don't know, maybe even better facilities at our southern border or like a wall or something. Think of what that money could do. The interest. Five years, more than what we spend on defense. 30 years. Largest expenditure we have. And quite frankly, our ever-growing entitlement spending is the other area where we are most out of control. Interest payments, entitlement spending. Together, the two of them account for nearly three-quarters of our federal spending growth in the next decade. Entitlement spending... And interest is pushing our deficit level to $1 trillion, which would essentially be 20 million Americans worth of work. Think about that. I don't know how you make that up. You don't make that up. There is no way to make it up. The Congressional Budget Office has told us, look, um, guys, we have a problem. You have two options. You can cut back on the spending or you can raise taxes. Quite frankly, I don't think we're going to be able to solve this problem unless we do both. Everybody wants one or the other, depending on which side of the aisle you're, you live on. But a truly fair and balanced system, a true give and take would be, we're going to cut spending, we're going to balance the budget, we are going to also raise taxes a little bit. 
it's just we we have to. The only alternative is is drastic drastic cuts in spending to not raise taxes at all or drastic drastic increases in taxes to just continue spending at the level we're at, not even to increase it. And what you have seen repeatedly, every time we come to a budget deal, we increase the budget, we increase the budget, we increase the budget, when we need to be going in the opposite direction every single time. I have so much more, but I only have 10 more minutes. Um, let's talk about a couple of options, okay? So to, to actually stabilize the budget and pay down the debt... Uh, we need Congress to implement reforms to lessen the costs, uh, quite frankly, of Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid. This is what is driving things out of control. So uh, to prevent Social Security funding shortfall, which, by the way, the trust funds, I don't have time to talk about them, but they're gone in a matter of years. Like, the trust funds are not not there. It, they won't work. I, I don't have time to get into it, but they are on their way to bankruptcy, and the trust funds are essentially just a long list of IOUs. So that's not going to work. And don't let any politician tell you that it will. Uh, but to prevent Social Security's funding shortfall um, and from it, uh, from it enlarging the government's debt level, what we need to do there is we just we need to increase the age of eligibility. That's the, the minimum thing uh, that we need to do. There are other um, options that we can look at. I'm trying to get through. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to get through a lot here, though, in a short amount of time. Um, we need to shift towards a flat anti-poverty benefit. We need to we need to change that. We need to modernize the spousal benefit. Uh, we need to reduce the payroll tax. Um, and there are there are other things. But Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, we have to deal with those. We can talk about raising the the tax brackets, raising the tax rates for for workers in this country. Um, but that, that that really doesn't work. And here's why. Uh, if we raised the the tax rate on those who make more than four hundred thousand uh, dollars to 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 deal with our debt by just raising taxes on the top income earners, which is a popular notion touted by various political candidates, oh, we can just we'll deal with this problem, we'll make it go away. Just the rich, if they would just pay their fair share. Well, currently uh, the top individual tax rate is roughly forty percent. To eliminate and to deal with, not even to eliminate, to just deal with this problem, uh, to eliminate the deficit, not even deal with the debt, just to eliminate the deficit, we would need to increase the top individual tax rate to 102% of, a, of, of, a, of the wealthy's income to deal with the deficit, just the deficit. Obviously, that's not going to work. No one is going to actually do work if you're going to tax them more <laughs> than the money that they're making, okay? So that does that doesn't work. When they're like, "Oh, we'll just raise the top, the top one percent." No, it it literally it mathematically doesn't work. Even if we uh, just, even if we lowered that number, if we raised uh, the tax bracket on households making two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year or more to get rid of the deficit by t raising taxes on those making above two hundred fifty thousand dollars or year or more, a year or more they would have to pay 90% of their income in taxes. Also probably not going to happen. I mean, I'm guessing... Well, I don't have time to do the math for you again. I, I got to keep going. But you can figure it out. It would be You'd be a lot better off working at In-N-Out Burger and making less money because you'd keep more money in the long run. Uh, $150,000. 
limit. Raise the taxes on everybody making more than 150 grand. Well, then those people would have to pay 80% in taxes. And if they live in a high-tax state, then they're better off not working at all. Now, look, I think that everyone who makes money should pay taxes on their money. But we have options. There's flat tax. There's a fair tax. With a flat tax, everybody pays the same rate uh, no matter what you make. There are hundreds of millionaires in this country who pay no taxes. And it just, it happens. And, uh, you know, call me crazy, but I think a guy making a million bucks ought to at least pay taxes at the same level as his secretary does, okay? I, I feel that's reasonable, but with the plethora of deductions and workarounds, you know, to me, it, it does seem like that would make sense. Rather than having child credits or charitable donations gift and estate deductions and so on you could just you could literally do your taxes on a postcard if uh if you just write down what you earn pay 10 percent of that number that would be a flat tax but those who dislike the flat tax fear that it's uh it has disproportional potential so essentially paying a thousand dollars on ten thousand dollars seems like it would hurt a whole lot more than paying than someone who would pay ten thousand dollars on a hundred thousand dollars although it's also true that someone who made a thousand times more than you would pay a thousand times more than you in taxes so uh, we can go around and round and round, uh, proponents argue it could eliminate the need for the IRS and just makes things more fair. Uh, but that's the flat tax. The fair tax, um, uh, the fair tax is 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 what I like personally. It's essentially how the state of Nevada operates with state taxes. I moved here from Pennsylvania, which has the third worst uh, state tax in the country. When you look at the combined rate of state and local taxes, it's even worse than New York. Um, but uh, the way Nevada does it, as you know, uh, we don't pay a state tax. Uh, in Nevada, you pay tax based on what you purchase, what you buy. A fair tax, everyone's paying the same tax rate, but only on the things that they buy that are not uh, necessities. So that's the fair tax. Flat tax, everybody pays the same rate uh, across the board at the end of the year on your income. Uh, fair tax, you pay the same rate in tax, but only on the things that you purchase. Now, it would probably be much more than 8%, but it would be uh, that would be the tax that you would pay. Currently, what we have is called a progressive tax system, so your taxes progressively increase as your income increases. That's progressive. So, I, I have to land this plane, and I'm sorry to, to do this quickly on you. I spent way too long introducing this, and I apologize. Um... But what happens if nothing changes? What if we just default? Because this is the other thing people talk about. What if, what if, what if we just, it's no big deal. What if we just default? Uh, I think uh, Michael Scott, I declare bankruptcy. No, that's not how it works. If we do that, not only is it really bad for future generations, but it's really bad for your savings account. It's really bad uh, for your retirement account. So think of places like Argentina and Greece that have defaulted on their debt. So the, the United States is unlikely to default because we print our own money, right? Uh, so an actual default, probably not going to happen because we have our own printing presses and we make our money. But we can default in other ways, uh, the main way being through inflation. So inflation would essentially be default by other indirect means. So instead of default by failure to pay uh, with currency, because we could just print more, uh, default by inflation occurs when we devalue our currency. Uh, that gives a less value to our creditors than the money they had initially uh, loaned. And it also... The, 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 so And that seems like, okay, let's just do that. Let's just print money and give it to them. The problem is that when we do that, inflation destroys your savings by essentially taxing... Uh, it's basically a tax because it reduces the value of every dollar in your savings account. So uh, depending on the inflation level, say your savings account says that you have 
I don't pick a number, 65,000 bucks. Inflation, we pay off all these people, though we don't default per se, uh, the, the value of that money is not the value that it was when you put it in there. Now you, instead of having 65 grand, though it says that number, it's worth you know half that or less. You may not be paying the debt right now. It may not seem like it affects you, but we will pay the costs of our fiscal collapse, which is coming if we do not balance our budget, whether that be through uh, higher taxes, greater inflation, a smaller economy. Uh, th- this bill is coming due. We cannot just keep pushing the ball down the road. Okay? Uh, we are, every day that passes that we do not deal with this makes the American dream further and further and further out of reach from future generations. Because a dollar will not be worth what it was. Jobs will be harder to find. And you'll be paying more taxes on the money that you make and the jobs you eventually find. So here's what it boils down to. Either we rein in the spending and we deal with our debt, or it's going to deal with us. And when that time comes, it will not be a pretty thing. If you want to get further into this, if you want to learn more about it, uh, the Heritage Foundation, an incredible, incredible resource, uh, and they've created... A, uh, they call it their blueprint for balance, and it has it is just full of in-depth, well-written proposals and pieces on this uh, subject of debt and deficits. Everything from policy agendas to actual budget proposals uh, for the various federal offices. Great visuals, graphics, slides. If you want to brush up on this more than I've gotten into here today, or or uh, have a conversation with your kids, they are a phenomenal resource uh, across the board, um, but specifically. I would recommend them when it comes to this uh, debt and deficit issue. Also, the Congressional Budget Office, nonpartisan office. They tell it like it is for the most part. And, uh, and again, that's just that's what it boils down to. We've got to rein in the spending. We've got to deal with the debt, or it's going to deal with us, and it's not going to be pretty when it does. So now you know all about our debt and our deficit. U.S. national debt at over $22.5 trillion dollars. We have added more debt under this president than is morally acceptable. And when pundits, pick your favorite poison, if you will, whether it's Fox News, CNN, anybody else, when everybody praises the raising of the debt ceiling, like this is a good thing and or no big deal, you need to understand that it's a huge deal. And raising the debt ceiling is never a good thing. An increasing deficit is never a good thing. And you need to understand why. Because though you may not see it affect you right now, the creditors are coming. They may not make it here while you're around. But your kids, your grandkids, somebody's going to be paying for this if we don't change things. That's the good news, though. Let me put this in here real, real fast because I'm already over time. The good news is we can fix this. All we have to do is balance our budget. We need to close the deficit. And we do that by either raising taxes or spending less. My personal opinion is we need to spend less because it will never be enough if we just keep raising taxes. But I'm, I'm okay with a little give and take on both sides because I, I, I think we're going to eventually need to do both anyway. So let's do both. Let's cut spending. Let's raise some taxes. Let's balance this budget so that our kids and our grandkids aren't dealing with a problem 
that we leave behind. That's it. Congratulations, you have now lived through my lengthy discussion on the U.S. debt and deficit. If you've made it this far, you deserve a trophy. I don't have any, but you deserve one nonetheless. <laughs> I would tell you that uh, that Dr. David Tice is coming up next with Living in Liberty, but I am already, you're going to hear my voice momentarily uh, on the radio again, telling you, introducing uh, the program, because I am the intro to his program. So it's going to be weird, because I'm going to stop talking, and then I'm going to start talking again, and... That's just the way it is because, you know, I went over time. So there's no music to to give you that buffer between my voice and my voice again. It's weird, but you'll understand momentarily. Station ID time. Are you ready? This is Experience Liberty Radio, 101.1 FM in Las Vegas, broadcasting live from Liberty Baptist Church, where we have services at 9.30 and 11.15 Sunday mornings, 6 p.m. Sunday evenings, and 7 p.m. Wednesday evenings. Our address is 6501 West Lakeview Boulevard, and we would love to have you and your family join us anytime for any of our services, live and in person. But if you can't be here in person... You can stream us online by visiting our website at experienceliberty.com. And while you're online, head on over to your Facebook page, which is probably already open anyway. Just type in Liberty Baptist Church of Las Vegas in the search bar. Give us a like so you never miss out on any of the exciting things happening here at Liberty. And we look forward to seeing you at church on Sunday. <laughs>